This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is episode 233, and we are in Belgium again. Joe Stang is co-hosting with me. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, Urbain Couteau from Struz Brewers is our guest on the podcast today. Welcome to the podcast, Urbain. Hi, all. We, uh, we came into this thinking we were going to talk about Belgian dark strong ale, and after walking through the brewery before the podcast, uh, it spurred a whole new line of questions because Urbain and, and uh, Stroza have built a beautiful brew house that is uh, working in a, a unique kind of way from mash into boil with parallel systems, multiples of smaller uh, gear, and also a very dedicated approach to building sustainability in the brew house with a uh, water system that uh, retreats water and keeps their water usage incredibly low and it's a carbon negative brewery. Um, very, very much ahead of the time. We, I'm excited to talk about all of those things and how you have built both uh, the creative brewing side of the brewery, but also the technical and sustainable side of the brewery. And we'll talk about both of those things through this episode, but first for nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. G&D stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. G&D also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design Experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Craft Brewing. Explore a whole universe of hop sensory with unique varieties like Cashmere, Comet, Triumph, El Dorado, and many more. Sourced directly from growers and processed at BSG's FSSC certified facility in Yakima to bring you only the very best hops from farmer to fermenter. For contracting, spot sales, and more info, reach out at Let's Talk Hops at bsgcraft.com. Urbane, we normally start off the podcast with a little bit of background and history. Why don't you walk us through yours, the, the how you became a brewer and the story of Stroza Brewers? Long story short, we started in uh, 2001 developing some homebrew beers at our ostrich farm. Uh, 15 minutes from here, uh, I think Joe. I was there, once yeah, came. one time. Yeah. That were... That were the early days, uh, little pilot set up, developing some stuff for the guests that uh, were staying at the farm. And uh, some of uh, these people would say, uh, time to go commercial urban. So what we did was uh, find a brewery that would want to uh, let us brew our beers. Uh, at first, we... Uh, Started uh, at Collier in uh, 2003, about uh, 100 kilometers from here. Uh, distance and technical problems made us decide to come closer to home. And that's when the DECA area started uh, in 2005. And you brewed a DECA for a while, right? How long were you there? From 2005, we were active at DECA until late 2014. It took us that many years to uh, put some money uh, on the side and uh, start our own facility. Well, very small facility, but uh, we came here in the school around 2009. It took us three years to uh, build the brew house started brewing in 2012 on a 100% uh, RVS system, while at DECA we were working on copper. So it took us another 
two to three years to, uh, let's say, align the different flavors. And we stopped uh, brewing at Deca early 14, bottled about uh, the last beers around the end of 14. And since then, we have been working independently uh, on our own beers here. I think the th- thinking back to those like late 2000s, uh, I was living here at that time and I remember going to the Zitos festivals and it was like always a crowd around you guys. Like that was, and I was also just thinking about that was also like the, uh, the big years for rate beer also. And so there was a lot of uh, a cool community conversation about beer and about big flavors that you guys were doing at that time. So I, I, if you want to talk about some of those beers that like uh, got people excited back then and still get people excited. At the time, uh, the beer scenery in Belgium was, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but it was quite dull. And uh, we kind of brought a, uh, a new kind of flavor and aroma wave uh, with the styles that we were brewing at the time. And uh, a lot of new young brewers have followed our footsteps uh, since then. What was the drive then to create a new brewery? Obviously, you had this idea that you could bring more flavor to it. But starting a business is a whole challenge compared to making beer at home. It's one that you all worked through brewing at other breweries for the first decade of, of the brewery's life. Um, you know, but that also gave you a chance to, to learn as you went and learn from other breweries. Um, you know, you know, but why, why build a business around that? We were entrapped. (laughs) (laughs) We, you know, we had this creative urge to, put more flavor and exotic aromas in beer. And due to the uh, enthusiasm of the people that drank our beers, we, yeah, we kind of were entrapped in a system we have never came out of. It has always grown to more not more in volume, but uh, let's say the difficulty has grown. We do a lot of barrel aging. We get casks from around all the smallest parts in the world. Name one, we probably have it. And this gives additional flavors to beers we couldn't even dream about. So once you're in this kind of water, or once you're in such a tub, a bathtub, (laughs) you don't even question yourself of ever coming out of it, right? Sure. As you were, now, the brewery, for most of us who are familiar with it, is known for two primary beers, beers like Panapot and Black Albert. Talk to me about how you formed the ideas for brewing those beers. You know, if the beer scene was, as you mentioned, less inspired by that flavor as you got started, how did you develop ideas for the recipe, flavor, and process to make those beers? If if you look at the uh, beer industry in Belgium, you'll uh, you'll find... um, You'll find a lot of dark quadruples. Well, thinking back around 2000, 2005, you will, you will find a, a lot of quadruples, dark quadruples uh, that are very popular, but uh, most to none, zero stouts. And uh, it was my way or the highway. <laughs> So uh, I said to myself, if we bring out the stout today, nobody will want to drink it in Belgium. So Panapot was at the time a hybrid uh, between a dark quadruple 
a strong ale and a stout. It was kind of a bridge to grow, let's say, Belgian beer enthusiasts towards stout drinking, but still with the label of a, a strong ale. That's, that was my approach. And it still is today, let's say, for a, uh, somebody that starts uh, his adventure in, uh, in, 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 let's say, artesian beer or craft beer. I don't know how you call it these days. <laughs> um, a lot of people still cannot get the hang of a typical stout immediately. You have to, you know, kind of put this bridge so that people can grow towards bigger flavors, bigger mouthfeel, uh, more bitterness. Um, you know, the, if you if you look at the uh, tasting palate of uh, the typical Belgian customer at that time, that taste palate was uh, grown uh, very sweet where uh, 20 years or 30 years earlier uh, you will f you 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 would still find beers with a level of uh, uh, sourness in it uh, in less than two three decades uh, all that sourness was gone uh, and you, you will you, you would only find a lot of sweet beers so it was our idea to break that that evolution, which is very dull. Sure, sure. It's still such a distinctive beer, Panapot. It's uh, there's no really still no other beer like it in Belgium. I think you, with this, um, I mean, we're talking about uh, the Belgian taste for sweetness, and it has sweetness. Uh, it's also spicy, but there, unlike a lot of other spicier Belgian ales, there's enough. Maybe and this is where the stout part of the DNA comes into it, but there's enough malt to contain it. And so I find myself always enjoying the beer and it, 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 somehow it all works out in balance. And is it, so is this part of the, the stepping stone or the gateway of it? It's a bit sweet and a bit spicy because that's familiar. Or is there also some story behind that too, uh, regionally as, as the fisherman's ale? And, uh, well, with every beer we, we brew, uh, there's always a story behind it. Uh, for Panapot, it's quite easy. Uh, Carlo's family uh, owned one. Uh, so Panapot is uh, actually uh, a sailing vessel uh, from a century ago uh, that would land on the beaches of uh, uh, a village called De Panne. And um, at that time, uh, a lot of fishermen's wives would brew a concoction that would resemble to a panapot today, but not exactly. Um, talking to uh, relatives from uh, Carlo, we were able to uh, kind of find out more about the flavors that drink would have, uh, which they would brew on a, on a, on a wood stove and then uh, just pour into a, a wooden barrel that uh, would sit in, in, the, in the cellar of, uh, of, of their small houses. And uh, from there, they would, uh, they would uh, uh, the day after, they would tap out uh, uh, liquid, hmm. um, which they would blend with uh, uh, some egg yolk and a little bit of sugar, uh, which would give them the energy uh, just to get through uh, their hard uh, uh, labor days. That's the story. So since then, um, what has changed uh, for uh, our beer Panapot? Uh, <laughs> we don't add yolk to it, <laughs> nor sugar. <laughs> Uh, but it, 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 let's say that the, the story of uh, the fisherman's ale uh, still stands today. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my grandmom in wintertime would uh, uh, take a, uh, a dark quadruple from a brewery here in the area 
and would add uh, egg yolk to it and sugar, uh, and we would <laughs> have to drink it because it would uh, give us energy. It's 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 a story that uh, still stands today. Uh, uh, when the elderly hear it, they 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 will recognize it. So that story helps connect this beer that itself is a little a bit of a departure from the normal quadruple and, and strong of this combination of beer um, that makes you know, a connection to history that makes people want to potentially try it. But let's, I want to talk about flavor wise, how you changed, how you added elements to the recipe to span that dark ale and stout and uh, quadruple kind of territory. Before we do that, are you looking for innovation in your next beverage breakthrough? Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out. With Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends, even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzer, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, as Craft Beer's most trusted point-of-sale system arrived is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts, and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com to set up a free, customized demo that's arrived.com, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Remember, there is no I in Arrived. Let's talk about the recipe itself and what steps you took with the beer recipe in order to move it to this bridge beer, as you called it. Well, if you take the uh, typical beer recipe for uh, dark quadruple or strong ale, if you want more chocolate and coffee notes towards it without being too aggressive, you have to add molds in your recipe that are darker. Sounds stupid, but... Uh, <laughs> Sounds logical. Um, the only thing we did, we, uh, we added uh, some... C500, uh, some C900. So C500 would kind of give those subtle coffee flavors. C900 would, uh, would add some chocolate flavors. And then uh, without going over the top, we would just add a little bit of C1400 which is about the darkest malt you can get, but never overdo it. Just, you know, like... Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Handful? Uh, well, a little bit more than a handful, but, uh, you know, today there aren't any secrets anymore. If you really want me to give you uh, a hint, I'd say on a 3000 liter batch of uh, panapot we'd add some 8 pounds of C1400 that's a handful in sure, a in a, sure. in a in a homebrew batch <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's also a a typical quadruple would, would have a lot plenty of dark sugar in there to to lighten it up too and, and add its own flavors my impression of panapot has always been it's a little bit beefier a little bit more malt based than yes. sugar based that's so, correct so that's correct so where, how are you bridging the those darker roast malts with the, the base of that beer the percentage of uh let's say industrial sugar can't find another name for it uh would be no more than five percent in the recipe uh, and that gives us this typical malty uh, mouthfeel uh, when you drink panapot. When you go higher in percentage of industrial sugar, you easily get this typical annoying, astringent sensation around 10% and more. So 
my advice would be stay under 10, way under 10%. Five is better. And that would be because we want to give this additional flavor of, of candy, for example. Uh, we use candy sugar, dark candy sugar in uh, Panapot. And also that uh, brown, brown sugar, mm, dark okay. brown sugar, mm-hmm. uh, where, where candy sugar is liquid and brown sugar is... Uh, is uh, Crystal. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. How much of a component of the beer would be that candy sugar and brown sugar well if two minutes ago i i i tell to you that we only use five percent in panapod it's not a lot yeah um i think the uh the the the, uh usage uh of the two elements is about 50 50 so yeah the uh, i think that that uh you get that nice I don't know, the beer still gives you this, you know, big multi hug. And it also as a sort of a, a cushion for the spicing in there. Can you talk about the spicing? I think it's like a really distinctive kind of, isn't it? There's plenty of Belgian beers are spiced, but usually not, not this way. That's, that's where our house yeast comes to play because uh, we don't use any more spices in our panapop. We stopped doing that in... Uh, early 2012 uh, we were kind of experimenting here at the school and having a lot of aligning trouble uh, between the the copper uh, brewing station at DECA which gave us so much more flavors than the stainless steel uh, setup here at the school so we were on a, a voyage to compensate those flavor differences and uh, the, our house yeast that we use in Panapot uh, comes from uh, the, the peel of a plum uh, from the, the southwest area of France where uh, an old uh, physics teacher uh, from me was able to uh, isolate uh, a Saccharomyces cerevisiae on the plum. And we have been using that since then for Panapot. I, so I used to drink a fair amount of Panapot. And I haven't, as I said, when we sat down, I haven't tasted it in years. Um, probably if I had them side by side, maybe I would figure out, but I, certainly I would not have known that it's unspiced. That, so how, the, the, the yeast, the house yeast that came from this plum, this is incredible. Um, how would you describe its profile? Like, if it if it was in a, a, a neutral beer, what what does it bring to the to the beer? Well, it it has certain um, <clears throat> characteristics that would change in function of fermentation temperatures, and in function of the amount of hops we use in uh, a recipe. So it was a learning phase for us too. It would act differently, for example, in a beer where uh, the IBU um, footprint would be around 30 IBU and would change uh, where uh, in a recipe of 10 IBU and then the temperatures are are very important. Uh, The more we would ferment at higher temperatures like we used to do at DECA. Uh, it would kind of overspice the beer as a uh, reaction to the higher temperature. So where at DECA we used to ferment around 27 degrees Celsius, today uh, it's between 18 and 20. Wow. You get that, still get that expressive profile out of out of that relatively low of a fermentation temperature. It would be. Um, <clears throat> we've seen that uh, if we go over twenty, uh, we get into trouble. So uh, we use. Uh, I think for a Belgium Belgian situation, we kind of use low temperatures. Eighteen twenty is 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 a low standard. Uh, for a, a fermentation of uh, beer in, in in our country, does is it a, is it a phenolic yeast? Is that if you go higher, does does that more of that come out, or what? What? what how do you get into trouble? 
we get into trouble um, <clears throat> on different uh, 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 actions uh, in the fermentation. We would get uh, more uh, stress on the beer. I define it as stress, fermentation stress. Maybe we need a scientist that uh, could say, uh, no, Urban, it, that's not stress, it's something else. But uh, I'm, I'm not a scientist. Do you think that's now related to the change in the way that you brew? Because now you have larger fermentation tanks and tend to do multiple brews over multiple days to fill one of those tanks. And you fill and pitch yeast and then that steps up and then you fill on top of that and continue fermentation, does that lower temperature just slow down that initial fermentation just a little bit so that it doesn't get too far ahead when you add batches in the, in the future days? Maybe, maybe that's a, a logic behind it. I don't need to add anything more to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, crazy how intelligent you are. Uh, <laughs> you should come brew here. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, let's say that, uh, the way we brew here, um, we have kind of grown towards uh, a situation due to our bigger fermentation tanks is where every brew day is kind of a starter for the batch we will brew tomorrow. That's one side of it. Um, and then of course, uh, the higher you go in temperature, the, quick, the quicker it ferments. So we kind of time, and, and there you're absolutely right, um, we kind of time uh, the fermentation uh, period in a 24-hour slot. So it, it, it kind of is uh, active enough uh, for the batch we have brewed uh, the next day um, and that there's no more fermentable sugar left so it needs that new batch to continue its 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 voyage that makes a lot of sense and uh, Joe and I were talking about that uh, after well, while you were uh, taking a break there and uh, you know and trying to think because if you were fermenting faster then it, that may cause stress on that yeast as you then, you know, it finishes and then waits for more, more beer or more wort to come. Again, you're fantastic. Ah. Let's use that as an entree to talk about that brew system because it's such an interesting but also different approach to brewing. You have a, a mash ton that uh, with a, a steel uh, mesh inside that you can lift up and you know and, and drain like a brew in a bag system that a home brewer might use, um, and you have two mash tuns and three boil kettles, uh, as well as a very extensive approach to water itself. Uh, and I want to talk about all of those things, but before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hopbacks on Sierra Nevada's Twin. Prototyping brew houses, SS BrewTech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS BrewTech's innovation list, head over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, are you looking for the tools to make your next improvements in process and quality control? The Mettler Toledo InPro 8630i is the ideal sensor for combined color and turbidity measurement in Loudering, filtration, and phase shift operations. Robust, compact, and easy to handle. It supports consistency in beer processing. The NTAP portable oxygen meter gives you readings wherever you need them, flexible in production for verification. While purging or for troubleshooting, it's your perfect helping hand. Contact Mettler Toledo today to find out more. Let's talk about this brew house design because it's a very unique and specific, I shouldn't say unique totally, but it is a very consciously designed, not a normal brew house design for a brewery of this size in that you have two mash tons and three boil kettles. 
Um, but it's designed to brew the way that you want to brew and also designed within the constraints of the space that you're working in also, you know, so that it could grow along with you. Uh, when you're working in a, a, a small area um, like we have, <clears throat> we tend to do some, uh, uh, let's say, homework and, uh, and exercises to uh, augment uh, our efficiency. And that's how we came to the idea of a kettle in a kettle. Grandfather didn't exist at that time. <laughs> and nor didn't all the others. Yeah. Uh, so if I may make, uh, let's say, an educated guess, I think they probably saw it here at Strays. Like on, on YouTube or, or people talking about what they saw here, about what you're doing. Yes. Uh, a lot of videos uh have seen the daylight on the internet uh of uh the kettle the inside kettle uh with the attached uh lotter plate uh coming out of uh, the outer vessel with a hoist that was back in 2012 uh, all those companies didn't do sure, that yet sure <clears throat> and now there are folks like bruja and others that are making commercial scale systems that look like yours. Um, and then of course on the homebrew scale, many of them exist now. And um, in fact, most of the you know, homebrew manufacturers are making similar systems now just because it's a very convenient way to brew. Well, whatever, happy to have help. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the advantage of uh, the system is that we can uh, brew up to four batches easily in a 10 hour uh, time lapse and uh, only with two uh, two persons uh, on the floor that's uh, fairly efficient uh, 10 hour time lapse three, sure. 3000 liters of uh, well 3200 actually of 10% uh, panapa is quite a high volume for such a, a, a little system, small system uh, on such a micro surface. And part of the reason it's so efficient is because it's so easy, basically, to get those grains out of there, dump them out, get them out back for the farmers to come pick up or however that works. But it's, it's just, you don't have to spend a lot of time cleaning and you get them out of there and you can go on to the next batch. Is that right? Uh, of course. Uh, so let's, let's calculate. So you insert uh, 700 pounds of uh, malts. You add water to that. With the, uh, the ratio of uh, liquid it sucks up, it doubles in weight. So that would mean if you don't have a system like that, which we hadn't in the early days, we, we, we had to shovel out uh, 1,400 pounds of uh, spent grains. That would take, if one person would do the job, that would take 30 to 40 minutes uh, for that one batch. So we, we gained a lot of time due to that. There's a second interesting feature due to that. Uh, we can easily circulate uh, wort from under the lotter uh, filter back on top of the, uh, the mash bed without executing pressure on the filter bed. And why is that? Because you have a layer of liquid between the inside vessel and the outside vessel. When you exert uh, sucking pressure, the pressure is divided due to the fact you have this possibility of uh, uh, your I can see that there's liquid on the side on of the, the sides, tank, and that yes. means it's not just pulling down on this yes. mash bed yes. and compacting it. Yeah, we have never had a stock mash since the day we introduced that system, which and says it, a lot with the amount of fifteen to eighteen percent beers that you brew that use a lot 
of grain. Absolutely. We are specialized in high-gravity beers. Are you getting a, a richer wort from this? Because I would think, I mean, obviously, with home brewers doing brew in a bag, it's always, you know, you need to rinse your grains. It's, it's sparging. Um, and I suppose you could be there and rinse those grains all day long, but I think that's not what you're doing. Are you going basically for this first runnings uh, of this system? Oh. One of the huge problems uh, a brewer would have when he uh, uh, tends to uh, wash out a, a stout bill is a huge amount of uh, stringent uh, flavors uh, from the, uh, the the mold bed. So uh, <clears throat> when 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 brewers tend to to brew stouts, they don't necessarily wash uh, their mold bed to, to rule out uh, those right. flavors. In other beers, it, 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 it's less of a problem. Um, but uh, yeah, Black Albert being one of uh, our most popular beers, we brew it a lot. Panapot uh, too. Uh, those are beers that have a lot of dark molds in it. We need to be very cautious uh, when washing the mold bed. How you call that? Sparge, sparging. sparging the sure. mold bed. Yeah, sorry for that. So you you have this system, and then you know it lifts up the in, internal you know filter, and, you know pulls the mash grains out, leaves liquid. You load into you know well, you load into one of the three kettles that you have and this way you can then quickly start another mash to brew i mean if you're going to do four turns on this brew house in one day uh and still finish by 4 p.m or you know 1600 um you know it's a very short amount of time to do four batches pretty amazing that you can do that with two people um keep to keep score Two mash tons, three kettles, four turns. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. What size are is are the each of the kettles that you use? Uh, the size is uh, very small. Uh, thousand liter each, three vessels. Well, not exactly. It's thousand three hundred fifty, but we usually usually never go over three thousand two hundred. Uh, to prevent boilovers, we are brewing with a uh, uh, gas fire. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it tends to be quite uh, how you call that active boils. And, so. and one of the reasons you do that, you want that like direct fire for the caramelization in the kettle. Yes, yeah. um, because that was one of the phenomenal features at Deca uh, with their. Uh, gas-fired engines, they could introduce those typical awesome Maillard flavors. Uh, so we had, to, we had to clone that or copy that here. So that's why we, we, we use gas fire. Uh, but uh, they tend to uh, uh, lean towards uh, vigorous boils. So uh, we never go over 3,200 just to you know, be on the safe side. But there's uh, one other uh, uh, very important uh, thing about that uh, mash setup. When we do four mashes, we do four step mashes. <laughs> Being... Uh, yes! Oh! <laughs> yes. I love steps. Go ahead. Okay. So, when you don't have the money to uh, buy... You know, that typical, fantastic hydraulic arms that go through your mash. The mash rakes. The rakes and the steam fire you would, you would add so you can step up in temperature. When you don't have all of that, then you need some peasant intelligence. <laughs> so what do we do? Batch one, we would mash in at 62 Batch two, we would go to 65. Batch three, 69. 
Nice. <laughs> and batch four would be 72. So we get four steps at the cost of, you know, peasant gear. That's interesting. So it's actually four separate single infusion, single temperature, but you're getting a little bit something different out of each of those four parts of the board. Yes. And imagine for a second, uh, we can make it even more uh, awkward. <laughs> brew day one, we would uh, brew four batches of uh, mash at 62. Brew day two, we go to 65 for all mashes. Brew day three, 69. Brew day four, 72. So that means we have a whole different uh, way of controlling our fermentation too. Because imagine for a second when you have uh, your first brew day with a whole lot of fermentables, but at a very low alcohol level that gives you the best results uh, because you don't have uh, any tolerance uh, to deal with uh, uh, around the yeast you're using. So you're, you're going with these sort of more fermentable wort to start out as you're filling up this fermenter in the, over these four days to get that yeast going. And then progressively, you're giving it a little bit bigger challenge as that yeast gets more and more powerful. That's Absolutely. Cool. That is really cool. So uh, the... the uh, <clears throat> Uh, we we didn't spend a million dollars on gear. I used my uh, my gray cells. It doesn't cost nothing, <laughs> uh, but I'm getting million dollar results in how we are using our gear to get to the results that only those you know breweries with uh, uh, a lot of technology can reach. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's just basic knowledge. Maybe that's a good, good place to segue into some of these other uh, modifications we've seen around here that, that obviously there's a lot of creative thinking going on in how can we, uh, how can we save money. But the directly, the thing that's really happening also is it's more sustainable in terms of energy use and all kinds of ways and water use. So maybe you could walk us through some of those modifications you've made here which were we i mean we have written about these kinds of things um breweries it's usually breweries much bigger than this and usually there are solutions that you buy you manufacturers make these and this is something you guys have done some inventing around here and it's really cool to see it on this scale can you tell us about some of those things that you've done here well um you can visit the 100 breweries they all have the same problem uh, overusage of energy and max spilling of water. You'll, 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 you'll see it everywhere. We had the advantage when uh, uh, we wanted to build our brewery that we, ha we, we have seen almost 100 breweries in the world uh, before we started building ours here. So uh, every positive feature we would see in a brewery, we would note it down, and, uh, and, and, and all what was negative, we would say, no, never in ours. And when push comes to shovel, you have to deal, uh, when you don't have a lot of money, you have to deal with the fact, if you don't have the money, you are not allowed to spend it, or you can't spend it. So you have to be, again, it's that... Uh, uh, peasant uh, uh, knowledge or peasant intelligence that uh, uh, comes uh, interfering and say look you have to you have to find a solution to 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 go around the problem but you're you're not allowed to spend a dime that's how we at a certain stage we uh, we decided to uh, install our own water treatment system that was back in 2012 when we started digging here behind the building. And uh, we installed a system uh, that would work with uh, injection of uh, um, um, oxygen. Every 15 minutes it would inject. 
so that the enzymatic activity would uh, 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 go uh, between uh, aerobic and uh, anaerobic uh, 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 activity. So, and that's the wastewater. That's the wastewater, wastewater that yeah. that that would be treated. But yeah. uh, once it's treated, it comes back through uh, a certain amount of basic filters before going to uh, our reverse osmotion station. And then it gets a UV treatment through this weird tubes we have nowadays, a uh, stainless steel tube with uh, a UV light in it. And, uh, and that's the last step of uh, the aseptization uh, of, uh, uh, of the, 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 the treated water, which becomes then after passing through the reverse osmosis, would become then pharmaceutically clean water. We stock it on the ground. We have our underground tanks, about 60,000 liters on the middle courtyard. And this would actually provide water for our bottling stations, which is known in a, in a, in a standard brewery to be the most spilling area uh, of, of, uh, of, of water, which is, to me, a very noble commodity these days. Uh, so what we do is uh, we, 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 we kind of created a circulatory system. Sure, like a closed loop. A closed loop, and we are always using that same water, well, with a little bit of even rainwater, because the, the rainwater we capture also goes through the the uh, filters, also goes through the reverse osmosis system and UV uh, bulbs. So yeah, uh, do we use a lot of water? Yes, but it's it's on a closed loop, so there's not a lot of water coming from the city. Uh, that's a, that's a fact. We were talking earlier before the podcast, and uh, you know, you quoted me a number of uh, like 1.5 liters of water used for every liter of beer that you produce. It's an astounding number because most breweries are many times that, and even you know, I, I believe it was Anheuser Busch, Anheuser InBev, AB InBev, that launched their goal to get their water usage down from the three or four to one range down into a 2.5 to one range, but you're already at a 1.5 to one range. And when you consider that, that means two thirds of the liquid that's leaving is leaving in the bottle, not going into a waste in, out into the city wastewater or anything else. It's very, very efficient. The basic problem uh, with a, a, a brewery using water today is one gets taxed for the amount of water he's using uh, that is uh, actually shown on your water meter. So it's, it's in the water invoice. So if, the, if you don't want to pay those taxes, sure. spend less water. So that was the, the, the basic you, thing. You pay that tax when it comes in, and then you also pay a tax on what you send down the you know out into wastewater. Also, it's integrated in the water invoice. Oh, so uh, when we created this uh, closed loop with our own water treatment uh, system, we were able to make sure the water we use is uniquely for the beer that gets bottled in the bottle, the wort that is kind of uh, sucked up by uh, the malts, the dry malts, and the evaporation you get uh, during boiling time. So that's 1.55. One is in the beer, 50 is in, uh, is in the spent grains, and uh, five is in the uh, evaporation. That's it. That's very cool. On the water subject, you also mentioned that you treat water with different water and mineral profiles and then save these different mineral profiles of water 
in various tanks so that as you're brewing specific beers, you can blend those water profiles together to achieve exactly what you need for each beer? Well, uh, you know, uh, city water uh, here in, uh, in Vleteren is quite hard and uh, has quite some irony, Javel-like flavors in it. So we have a deionizer, which kind of uh, solves uh, those issues. And then we have uh, our reverse osmosis system, which uh, uh, kind of subtracts all the minerals uh, out of that water. What we do is we have a uh, computerized water management system that for every style of beer we brew, it kind of chooses uh, between three amounts of uh, those basic profiles we have. Uh, One being the hard city water, then uh, the deionized soft water, and then the the reversed osmosis water without minerals. It's an algorithm I I, I kind of uh, uh, worked out, where for stouts we need a lot of minerals, so it's easy. And uh, the lower we go in... um, in color of the beer, uh, the lesser minerals we want to have in that water. So it's it's fairly simple again. For the record, that's the only computer you'll find in the brew house too. It's uh, their consistency is based on routine and, and good planning, and then there's but for the water profile, you've got the computer. You know why? At the time after brew days, we would spend another three hours to do the water management. Uh, so one 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 brewer would have to stay behind. So uh, brewing uh, at our facility is 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 kind of a hard job. It's very uh, manual. Uh, you have to focus all the time uh, because you don't have those computers that do it for you. So you need to stay awake uh, for at least uh, ten to twelve hours, and then after having done all that labor in temperatures that are, you know, pretty high. Uh, brew house temperature is around 30 centigrade. So it's a short and t-shirt uh, uh, temperature. And after uh, a 10 to 12 hour brewing day, one would have to stay behind for an extra two to three hours to do that water management, uh, which we need uh, the next day. So that's that's... Not labor intensive, but you tend to fall asleep in that moment of the day. So we have had water tanks that uh, kind of uh, ran over with water. You falling asleep, <laughs> valves are open, and uh, right, right, and uh, and then you would get a shower, for example, because uh, one of the tanks would spill over. Mm. So we kind of uh, uh, inserted this uh, uh, small computer um, that would handle all of this, and uh, and that's an economy of labor, uh, which uh, yeah gives us a two-hour gain every brew day. That's great. Um, we should also note that you have a number of other efficiency me- measures, such as a heat exchanger pulling heat from the exhaust from the boil kettles that then heats up water and you know stores that in a tank to get it to you know 80 centigrade um, you know in order to speed up heating and reduce energy use in future things you know you are capturing energy what would be waste energy in many different ways throughout the brew house even though it's a very small scale brewery And that approach to efficiency is really exciting. We could talk endlessly about that, but I want to talk about high-gravity brewing before we finish because um, we've been drinking some of your high-gravity beers. And when we we took a break in the middle of this and you poured us a 300 IBU, 18% uh, beer, uh, and we started, you're doing some interesting magic with fermentation to pull big flavors, but still balance big flavors 
and get a great expression of alcohol despite these very large, you know, very high ABV beers. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute. Um, brewing a, a beer that's over 15% with that much alcohol, with that kind of, you know, fermentation can easily get out of hand. How do you all manage first that the fermentation piece for your high gravity beers? You would need a yeast strain that uh, could run a marathon. Yeah. Where can you find the biggest, the greatest people on earth that run marathons? Kenya. Kenya. (laughs) I was just fooling around with you. (laughs) It's a lame joke I tend to use, but uh, uh, the the yeast strain we use comes from uh, an American beer. California? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you've tasted the beer, so you're, you're, um, you're, you're, you're a big analyst. That's why you know. Um, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that you already told me what it was. <laughs> <laughs> we use a strain called Chico Ale strain uh, yeast. Uh, it's, it's, it's used by... I'm sure it's used by Sierra Nevada to to make their uh, base uh, pale ale, but we've, but we've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, it's probably used by thousands and thousands of brewers, uh, you know, in America and around the world. Well, the reason why we started using it was because it's such a clean uh, yeast strain. Right. It 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 doesn't uh, it it. It doesn't give an identity to the beer. Uh, it 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 lets the beer be the identity it is given by the brewer that makes or builds his recipe. So it's a basic uh, pale ale uh, yeast strain, uh, if I can add to that. But it's able to run marathons. I think a lot of people would be surprised that it could run an 18% ABV marathon. How are you? I mean, is this is this uh, part of the puzzle here with these layered fermentations you're doing by the, by day four? You've got this rollicking uh, party going on in there. Is that is that part of how you're getting to 18%? This and 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 other problems. Imagine for a second. You were a yeast, uh, uh, a yeast cell, and you're 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 finding yourselves in that uh, wort or that fermenting beer, and you'd you'd see you would encounter uh, different sugars of different lengths, and then due to the identity you have, you you uh, you would always search to ferment the most easy sugars first and by the time uh, there's no more of those sugars left and you you go find the others the the your alcohol tolerance has become so small that you don't have the force anymore to attack those sugars what do you think would be the result stalled fermentation voila so what do we do um when you when you ferment a high gravity beer like that at a lower temperature, you would uh, give him the possibility to run a marathon. Slow it down, pace pace yourself to make it through the marathon. Yes, and force that yeast strain to attack the difficult sugars from day one. How do you do that? Uh, by making sure you have uh, as less as easy sugars to ferment and as much as difficult uh, sugars uh, to begin with. So if you want it in technical terms, you have maltos and you have malto trios. The last would be the most difficult of the two. But then you have... The sucrose, which are the most easy ones, we tend to let those out. So I have to build in a correction here. While our first brew day would be a 62 to launch fermentation, 
our second brew day wouldn't be a 65 or a 69. No, we'd, we'd, we'd do a 72 in the second brew day and a 69 in the third brew day and a 65 in the fourth brew day. And that would be the best diet for that yeast strain to run that marathon. Jamie, have you ever heard of anything like this before? No, no. I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation I, immensely. I just, I love the way, Urban, that you have a problem and uh, it's prob- problems that uh, every brewer faces and you have this completely other way of getting to a solution. It's, uh, you're very much an outside-the-box thinker and it explains so much about the beers as well as how this brew house is built. Uh, it's about how our parents thought and our grandparents uh, if you look to history, there's always people that would solve problems with nothing. And that's what we have been forced to do for the last 20 years because there was al- always one common uh, uh, denominator in the field, and that was lack of money and capital. So you have to find ways to go around the problem without a budget. Well, you've solved them in smart and sustainable and also delicious ways. Um, Let's zoom out now um, as we're getting on to the end and talk about the big picture. The last few years have been, last couple of years have been very difficult through COVID. Um, You've been able to host fewer people here at the brewery. You've had issues with an American distributor that went out of business and that has hampered your ability to get beer to some beer fans there. Um, what are some of the short-term goals for Stroisa? And what are what is your big picture long-term goal? If I tell you that the last two uh, years have been a very turbulent ride, I don't want to whine uh, about that because probably everybody in the world has had the same problem. Yeah. Um, while, while everybody has been very resilient uh, in coping with uh, uh, Corona or COVID, whatever, how you name it, I think that uh, uh, the period ahead of us uh, will be very turbulent too because uh, look at what it's doing to logistics. Uh, Look what it's doing to energy prices. Uh, It's it's running out of uh, hand uh, and out of order. Uh, Imagine for a second that uh, you'd be obliged to spend... uh, all your money towards uh, an electricity or an energy bill instead of consuming. That's, to my knowledge, a huge problem for an economy which uh, could not be growing uh, in the short term. You know, we need to draw a line and say, okay, we've, we've conquered this, uh, draw a line under it and say, okay, start all over again today or tomorrow, but not within two or three years because it'll be too late. But we have to start all over again today or tomorrow and do what we do best. Work, brew beer, uh, in whatever uh, industry you're working, doing what you do best and make sure that, you know, we get, a little bit of a stabilization again. Right, right. I, it's something we've said many times before, COVID's a serious problem, but get vaccinated, be safe, take care of each other, keep breweries open, keep beer bars open, and let's keep the economy moving forward. Of course, go. of course, but uh, we need to open society again. Yeah. Uh, I think two years is, uh, is long enough. And uh, I think the, 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 the biggest storm is, 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 is behind us. And uh, okay, we, we, we know we're uh, with a lot of people on this planet and we, uh, we know we have a lot to do. 
And uh, okay, we know uh, we need to be more cautious in the in the future. Uh, but with us knowing all of that, I think we can go forward again real soon. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's happening for us. I know when I return to Colorado from this trip that our, our statewide mask mandate will be off and, uh, you know, it'll be up to individuals to take care of themselves and take care of each other. Um, and I hope we all do that again so that uh, we can continue to get back to normal life again. Colorado, isn't that the biggest beer state in the world? <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we live there. We could talk about this for a long time, um, but I think it's a good time to, to bring this to a close. For nearly 30 years, GD Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. Explore a whole universe of hop sensory with unique varieties from BSG. Think outside the puree box with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Arrived is the point of sale system designed specifically with breweries in mind. Put SS Brutex advances to work in your brew house. And Meddler Toledo's InPro 8630i supports consistency in beer processing. If you enjoy the podcast, of course, we love your support. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. If you're planning a brewery, head on over to breweryworkshop.com for information on our next workshop in Portland, Oregon this July. Urban, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, sharing some beers with us, sharing your, your vision for brewing and building a brew house and sustainability. Uh, it's been fascinating to see the brewery and talk to you about this. I was very happy you guys came along after a, a two-year uh, isolation here on our island. I was uh, mostly happy to do this. Thank you, guys. So cool to be back here in the classroom at the old school. Thank you for having us, Urban. If people want to learn more about the brewery, where can they find you? We have a website called streuse.com on the contact feature you can get to us if you want to come visit us or have a uh, guided tour uh, there are still possibilities to do that uh, smaller groups bigger groups uh, the moment uh, you write us for that we can get in touch with you and see how to solve your problem thank you so much for talking with us cheers thank you all This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.